Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling. Thanks for joining me again this week. Today, I dive in to listener questions with Ruben Gomez, the founder of BidSketch and DocSketch, which is electronic signatures. And he is soon renaming that to SignWell, as you will hear in this episode. But today we talk about different models of bootstrapping success. We talk about hiring W-2 versus hiring contractors. We talk about how to determine if a business is an ideal fit for bootstrapping versus one that isn't. And we once again revisit enterprise pricing. Thanks so much for joining me today. If we're not connected on Twitter, I'm at Rob Walling and Startups for the rest of us is at Startups Pod. And with that, let's dive into our listener questions. Ruben Gomez, welcome back to Startups for the rest of us. Thanks for joining me, man. Thanks. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. Let's dive straight into some listener questions. Of course, per usual, voicemails go to the top of the stack. And in this episode, we are debuting our first ever video voicemail. So if you're watching this on YouTube or on Twitter, you'll actually see a video of James Kennedy asking a question, but we'll also obviously pull the audio in for your listening enjoyment. Hey, this uh, new ask a question feature on Russia's website is cool, so I couldn't resist but submit a question. So, Rob, or guest, there's been many ways that people in the bootstrap community have been winning the last 10 years. You know, I think of Rob and his exit. I think of Ruben with his many successes or, and his seemingly increasing success and Pelzi and, you know, there's the, the rock stars of the, who we consider to be the rock stars of the community. But I was wondering, who are your five top templates for success that you've seen as bootstrappers? Maybe for different reasons. Maybe some have exited. Maybe some are holding on. Maybe some have gone big. Maybe some are staying, staying small. I'd be interested to see who you admire most within the bootstrapping community. Keep up the great work. Thanks for the question, James, and for trying out our new video ask. You can go to startupsfortherestofus.com and there's an ask a question link at the top and you can do audio or video asks just right there in the website or from your phone. So with that, he asked about who we admire most as bootstrappers. I think we can just throw out a few folks who I, I think we respect who are, who are doing good work, pushing things forward and Bootstrapping is such a trip because I'd say bootstrapping and mostly bootstrapping, let's be clear, right? If you raise a small amount of funding, non-venture track, right? We don't, we're not going to be purists about it. But there are some people who are really ambitious bootstrappers, right? And, and they want to build a $5 million, $10 million bootstrap company and sell that for a lot of money. Or maybe they want to pull a bunch of profit on it. And then there are, I think, people who are building awesome, amazing lifestyle businesses of like, hey, we're doing 50K a month and it's me or two people. And we're just raking in profit on that. So those are two models. Maybe there's a, you know, a third you have in mind, but who are some folks that, that you see in our space, who you respect and you feel like are doing good work? That's right. They're, they're also, besides like just trying to be super profitable, having larger teams and the ones that are a lot more efficient with the people that they have on the team and the revenue that they're basically optimizing for revenue in some cases, there are two names that come to mind, or three names that come to mind. First, uh, I would say Ted and Harry from Moreware. And I like how they've been uh, bootstrapping for a long time. They've been building their business, and they didn't have like this crazy growth right from the beginning. It took them a while, but they have a great business right now. They're super profitable. They like to optimize for revenue per employee which is kind of interesting. I've always liked that way of thinking. And I just 
like how they run their business. I always have. I agree with you. And more, it's M-O-R-A-W-A-R-E.com, moreaware.com. It's the best, right? Six, 15, 16 years they've been working on it, and they come to a lot of microconfs, and it's countertop software. It's SaaS for countertop installers. People, they need to design granite or like cutting, schedule things. It's, it's a whole suite. And so it's a crazy cool niche. Yeah, it's a niche uh, product. There's also Jordan Gall, which has had cart hook. He's uh, doing something new now, which rally. wouldn't be con- yeah rally wouldn't be considered bootstrapping at this point. Uh, but that's a really interesting story there as well. With cart hook, he's just been I'd probably put him in the more aggressive sort of uh, category. He seeks more aggressive growth. He's good with building larger teams. He's also optimizing for revenue, but he isn't so, he doesn't think twice about spending money if it's going to lead to growth. So it's not necessarily about that optimizing revenue per employee sort of way that Harry and Ted do. Right. And yet still have a lot of respect for him as a, as an operator and as someone who mostly bootstrapped. Right. He, uh, does what is needed to grow really great business. And he's done it first time, he's doing it, doing it again this time. Yeah, and that's, that is such a fascinating difference between those two examples. You know, when you say aggressive, you don't mean interpersonally for Jordan. You mean he's just aggressive about growing a business, that he is willing to hire a team of 30 people and to, hey, I'm going to raise more funding to do this within reason. You know, not going to be this, this crazy venture-backed story necessarily, although as, we, as we're talking about at Rally, you know, I know he's uh, working at a different level now, but I actually had them on my list as well. A couple other folks I thought about include Peldy from Balsamic. Right, one of the OGs, and he has. You know, he wanted the super wanted to be a solo, and then just hires individuals as needed, and obviously doing very well in terms of of profit. I think he runs more it more like more aware, where he I don't know that he looks at profit per employee or revenue per employee, but I do know that he thinks of it like this is a long term business, and and I can imagine Pelly running Balsamic in fifteen twenty years. Versus folks who, at least in my experience, folks who are ambitious about growth tend to be moving towards an exit. I'm not saying everyone, I'm not making, but that that is like the pattern that I see. And Peldy is not like growth, 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 you know, I'm going to do it. It's, it's kind of like, no, serve our customers, show up. And not, not saying he would never sell, but another example is uh, Matt, Joel, and Ken at Churnbuster. And they acquired Churnbuster from Andrew Culver uh, a few years ago, but they're doing really well. I'm an angel investor, so I, you know, I kind of know the ins and outs of that. And they're they're a pretty cool balance actually because they want growth, but they're not like it's certainly not growth at all costs, or even as as aggressive or ambitious as like like pushing like Jordan. And yet they have success in their own way, and they there's it's a very profitable business, and they're looking to uh, taking out profit distributions to investors, which I think is is something a lot of people talk about that as a goal, and very very few bootstrappers do, who are not solo who actually take investment wind up doing that. A lot of them again that I see wind up exiting instead of doing that. So that's a fun one, and then I think uh, I'll name two more. So I think what Rand Fishkin is doing with SparkToro is pretty cool. He raised his round. He said, I don't know if he's public. Again, I'm an investor there. So I don't know if he's public about revenue, but I believe he said it's tens of thousands of dollars a month and it's just him and Casey and they have some contractors. So like they're, they're doing fine. I like that one. It's very interesting how the difference between uh, what he's doing with SparkToro and what he did with Moz. 
and how, he, like, based off of everything that you learned from what happened at Moz, how he's just changing his approach. That's a cool one. And then Michelle and Matthias Hansen with Geocodio. I think they're a good example of folks who have built, it's just, as far as I know, it's just the two of them. If I were to guess, it's doing 10, 20, 30 grand, you know, some number that is, that will throw off a lot of profit for two people and funds, funds a lifestyle. And I don't get the feeling that they have the intention of growing it big. I don't get the feeling that they want to sell it, but they are living that corner. That's another, perhaps contrasting with a Jordan Gall approach or even my approach, right? Or your and my approach of, Hey, I want to, I want this thing to get big. I'm going to compete in a big space. And the idea of exiting is, you know, for a lot of money is, is intriguing. I don't, I don't think that, you know, that's something they want to do. How would you have described your approach when you were doing drip? It's interesting. It switched. The idea was like, oh, this will be another lifestyle business. This will be great. Because Hittail before it was doing 25, 30 grand a month. It was just me, few contractors. So it was that amazing like cash machine. And it was the most, most profitable and the most money, right, that I had ever pulled out of a business. So Drip, I was thinking, could it be bigger than that, still profitable, but really just be me or a couple people? I didn't want to grow a team. That's how it started. And by the time we pivoted into becoming full-blown ESP and then marketing automation, I was like, this is not, we can't do that. Like, we have to hire. And when we got to, you know, obviously 10 people when we were acquired, my approach by that time had become, this is an opportunity that I don't think I should fumble. Because the, the how big the space was and how much traction we were getting and the kind of mini brand that we had built, it felt like it, I would have been doing myself a disservice in my life to not take advantage of that and try to build it. And I didn't, I didn't suddenly become, oh, I'm going to build it and sell it. But I did see the path to many sevens figures and frankly, probably would be, you know, at this point, if I was still running it, it would, you know, be in, in the eight figures, which obviously it is now with the new owners. But that was that. How would you describe your approach? Because see, folks know you, you know, you founder of BidSketch. Now the founder of Signwell, uh, which is and BidSketch is uh, proposal software SaaS, and Signwell is electronic signature, which is a much much larger and much more competitive space. And so it's a different. Would you say those two are similar? Where BidSketch is maybe the lifestyle portion, and Signwell is like that this thing can get really really big. I think that's right. I, with BidSketch, it was definitely about just I just quit my job to do that full time, and it was just to take out as much cash as I could out of the business and have as much free time as I possibly could while doing it. Growing the business, but not being like necessarily super aggressive at times, being more aggressive than, than others about, about growth. But for DocSketch, it's definitely a different, it's a different beast. It's from the start, it was more of a longer term approach versus like with BitSketch, I had to optimize a little bit more on the revenue side because I wanted to do that full time, and then it was the only thing paying for the bills. Uh, once I started Doc Sketch, I had Bid Sketch that I could leverage to pay some of the bills, and I could take a different approach to try and build something much bigger, longer term. Sometimes, when you overly optimize for revenue early on, you damage your chances for creating something much bigger later on. So that's sort of how I'm thinking about the differences between the two. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you weren't on the show today, you would have been in my or my top two or three. It would have been Peldy, Ruben, and Jordan in terms of folks that I think are pushing things forward and, and just have a cool, kind of a cool outlook on it. And in case folks missed it, you called it Doc Sketch. I called it Signwell because you are renaming it 
in the next in the coming weeks you have publicly announced that to your user base so it's not like i'm breaking news but just so folks understand that right bid sketch and doc sketch but now doc sketch is becoming sign well yep very cool. That's a yeah. It's an interesting topic. I don't think we've ever really chatted about that in the past. I've got another question from James Kennedy. This one is an audio, and we will roll that here. Hey, good morning from a beautiful beach in Dublin Bay. It's James Kennedy here, listening to you talking about full time versus W two versus contractors. Another topic that's interesting is outlook. And view, like if you use upworking people, people are used to remote working contractors, they have a different outlet, um, outlook rather, which can be for good or, or ill. Oftentimes contractors who are working on upwork or other remote places, they actually do want stability of a long-term gig so you can hire, you know, give them 40 hours a week. And then the other side of it is, forgetting the, the W2 side of it is, it's, yeah, sure, there's paperwork. But probably the bigger part is the emotional commitment. It's a different mindset if you're hiring for a full-time position at all levels, really. They just have a different mindset and you have a higher bar to meet to meet their expectations, which I'm not saying is, is good or bad, but it's harder to meet their expectations. We didn't get James's full question. I'm not sure if there was an issue on his end or, or on the video ask end. But in general, I, I think what he's saying is there are pros and cons to hiring contractors versus in the U.S. we call them W-2 employees. It's usually 1099 versus W-2 is kind of the U.S. designations, but really it's am I paying you as a contractor versus you're really a full-time employee with full benefits and, and you know, I think of it as being like truly part of the team. And he's saying there are pros and cons on, I think, on both sides, right? It's like full-time W-2 employees often have expectations of mentorship and a raise every year and a budget to do this and, you know, whatever else, progression, like a progression of their career versus oftentimes contractors or consultants, you're hiring them for a result. <laughs> and if they don't perform, you can let them go quickly versus W-2 folks. It's, it's harder. It's harder to fire someone, right? Just mentally and, and, you know, even legally, I'd say in a lot of places. So what's your thinking? You have hired a lot of people over the years for your companies. And like, when do you look at hiring contract versus W-2? Would you um, put somebody who's full-time, but a contractor, like in the category of contractor, because we know we know several people, right, that talk about their job as like my client. They say my client, that's all they do. They don't have any other clients. I always I've always thought of it as like it's got to be somebody that has other clients or potentially can have other clients. Um, I don't know. What What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a good point to bring up. Is you can hire a contractor for forty hours a week, and in essence, they're like a W two employee, right? And I think that's about the communication. And it's about when you're hiring being like, look, we have to pay you as a contractor because XYZ reason. Usually it's you live in another country and trying to hire you through the, you know, with the IRS and your country's thing. It's just way easier to do it as a contractor. But we want you to be, you are part of the team and we want to, you to feel like this is your full-time job. And we have the loyalty to you that it's a full-time job and we will give you raises, evaluations, progression. But what we need from you is, uh, I don't want you to take on other contract work. Like that's the expectation. Right? So I think it's about communication there. And I think if you leave it open, I don't know. You know, I think it depends. You're right there. We have a lot of folks who have a 40 hour week contract gig and they treat it as a client. They don't have that connection. You know, so I think it can go either way, just based on conversation. Okay, 
Gotcha. So the main thing that I think about, and I'm working with both, I have, I have for years, is whether or not it's core to what you have to do, right? Like if you have a software company, generally that's kind of core building the software, improving it. It's the product. It's part of the offer. It's So like development is generally going to be full-time. In some cases, I mean, budget may not be there to where you can afford, like in the early days for BidSketch, it was a couple of developers that were part-time developers. They were contractors. But if you can afford it, then yeah, I would say that's full-time and that doesn't mean you don't enhance that team with, you know, contractors from time to time or anything like that. And then just stuff that I kind of like the way that Rand was talking about it last time, right? To where it can make sense for marketing certain types of roles to where performance is going to be really clear. And sometimes it's just better to have an even an agency to where you have a team of people bringing you results and working together to, to like create really high quality work. And it's hard to comp- just hire one person that can compete with that. And if they're not performing, then, then you, know, you find another contractor or an agency that, that can get you the results that, that you want. Right, and that was advice that, I mean, you and I chatted about content marketing help that I'm looking for with Tiny Seed, right? Of like, we used to put, we've, we've put some content pieces out that have done very well, like tinyseed.com slash thesis, and we had a blog post about the software industry iceberg, and it just took a tremendous amount of time for us to do. And we have the, we have data, we have thoughts, but to actually write it, edit it, produce it, promote it was dozens and dozens of hours from our team. And frankly, we're busy mentoring founders, you know, and, and, and running application processes and um, running an accelerator in essence. And so I was bouncing ideas off folks and I was like, I'm going to hire a content marketer, right? I'm going to hire someone to help us do this thought leadership stuff to produce some of this. And when you and I chatted, I was like, I have a, a lead on someone who's W2, could be full time. And you're like, don't do it, man. You're like the, you know, because if a one person is in content marketing is nowhere near as good as a an agent, you know, an agency of three or four people who have who have different skill sets, right? Of there's the strategist and then there's the writer and then there's the editor and then there's often a designer, right, who then puts polish on it. Yeah, I think one of the mistakes that people might do make in that situation is is say like, oh, then I'll hire a contractor part-time or lower the budget or something like that. The comparison should really be almost, you know, at the same budget. Yeah. And that's the thing you did ask, is content marketing core to operating Tiny Seed? And it's not, right? I mean, we have been operating it without a ton of content marketing for the past year. We put out a few things, but it is not a core competency versus running the accelerator like Tracy does or fundraising, right? Like A&R and I are doing. Like those are core competencies. And as you're saying, like a software company, it's your developers, it's your product people. I would say it's marketing. I wouldn't not tend to outsource right marketing and sales to contractors in general. I think all things being equal, although I guess if you're going to outsource, like if we were to say, okay, you have enough budget to hire agencies to do certain things like content marketing, like B2B SaaS content marketing, I could, I could see that. It, a lot of it comes down to budget, right? Right. So if paid acquisition is kind of working for you, that's often a really good use case for going with an agency or somebody who does it all the time because it changes so fast and so much, you know? Right. Versus like, yeah, learning it yourself. Yeah. Or hiring a, an employee whose only job is that. It's a tough sell. Yeah. What's your what's your take on the thing that we've seen a little bit more often with like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Suh- Suhail? 
Sahil at Gumroad? Yes, with like basically all part-time contractors filling in for, for core roles. Uh, that's not something I would personally do. I don't know how Gumroad is structured or how it works, but usually I think of if I am going to truly hire a role that is going to be part-time, I'm going to tend to make them contractors. But in general, I, I do like having dedicated resources to my stuff, whether that is an agency that that I can afford or it is someone who is in on what on what we need. Back in the day when I was bootstrapped, it didn't have the budget for it, right? And everybody was contract and most people started as part-time and then but I tried to get them to full-time as soon as I could because I noticed there was a difference in their focus and a difference in their their willingness. It, they didn't just show up and get the job done. It comes back to that task level thinker, project level thinker, owner level thinker, right? Strategic thinkers. And you can absolutely hire contractors to do task level stuff. It's harder to find folks who do project stuff, but you can find project level. But I don't know contractors who are like that owner level strategic thinkers, but I do know folks who will come on full time with you and, and be on that journey with you. Yeah, that makes sense. In the local Slack uh, over here in Portland with a few friends, we were discussing that somebody was considering taking that approach because they've seen it a little bit more and more. My take was similar. Yeah, it's, it's similar to yours. I'm not a big fan of it, um, especially when you end up having their trade-offs. And I get part of it is not having the overhead of like a W-2 employee for, oh, you don't have to do these one-on-ones. You don't have to do a lot of the HR stuff. You don't have to do some of the paperwork. But then the trade-off is that you get somebody who's really not as committed and you get overhead in a different way. Now you, you're dealing with more people than before, right? So instead of, instead of a team of 10, I'm not sure how many people you know, are on like working for Gumroad, 10, 15 people, you end up with 30 people maybe, right? And that's, that's a totally different thing. That makes things a lot more difficult in a, in a different way. I don't like that trade-off, especially for core stuff. And then often all those people are filling their time with other client projects and that affects timelines and, and things like that. So not generally not a fan of it. My thinking on it has changed because I used to be all part-time contractors and then I was some full-time contractors. And then once I experienced, like I said, the buy-in and the ownership of having full-time W-2 people, I was like, oh, okay, this is if I'm going to build that kind of business... I want my core stuff covered. If I want to build an amazing lifestyle, again, coming back to lifestyle, I, that's not a pejorative term for me. That is like lifestyle business is a cash cow. It's a great business, you know? And if I want to build a, you know, a business where I can just take out maximum profits and I'm willing to project manage and, and have a lot of resources, like you're saying, two or three times the number of people and they're all part-time, that's an approach. It's just, I don't think it's an approach that I would, would take anymore. And it's just not the kind of business that I want to build. Thanks for the questions, James. That was uh, super helpful. And again, you know, video and voicemail questions, they go to the top of the stack, startupsfortherestofus.com. You can hit the ask a question button at the top. Our next question came from Twitter and it's from Jeff Swenson. His Twitter handle is JS Swenson with an E. And he was just asking me a question directly. He said, do you have any content that addresses how to determine if an idea is fit for bootstrapping versus one that isn't? First thing I will say is, 
I don't think there's a direct dichotomy of bootstrapping or not. There's often like, do I bootstrap, do I want to raise a small amount of funding, or do I want to venture track? I would say there's at least, there's a continuum, but those are at least three different options. Um, But my response to him was, I haven't specifically created content on this, but in general, I believe you can bootstrap almost any software company. But if you're dealing with manufacturing or real estate, right, like WeWork, then probably not. It's going to be really, really hard. You're going to want to raise money. And then there's businesses that only work at scale, like Facebook, where if you build a SaaS and you have one client, they get value out of it and they pay you. If you have 10 clients, they get value out of it and they pay you. Facebook with one, 10, 100 people is, is worthless, right? So that's the kind of business that needs to be at scale, not only to provide value to the group through the network effect, but to then have enough scale that you can monetize it with ads, which is how those types of business, the consumer type businesses tend, tend to be tend to be not funded, but the way they tend to monetize. So I thought this was a really interesting question because I hadn't exactly thought it through to that extent before, before I was replying to him. I think the one other thing is two-sided marketplaces are possible to bootstrap, but I think you need an audience. Not need is not the right word. I think you're almost destined to fail if you do not already have an audience with one side of that network, right? That you're not trying to build bootstrap a two-sided marketplace and get both markets at once or both sides of it at once. So I think that'd be the other one that I would throw out. What do you think about this question, bootstrappable versus not? I totally, uh, completely agree with what you said. I would, if you need money, if it's just super expensive because of, you know, some technology or, or something like that, then yeah, those are, those are really difficult. Or if it's, you need money for different reasons because you have to, and for some reason, delay the uh, revenue side, those are also tough, right? It's something that needs to be free for you to capture certain, and this is super related to what you were just talking about, parts of the market for to make the business work. And that can look like all sorts of different businesses, but those are the ones that just jump out at me. Other than that, you can, even if you're thinking about, because in the past people have said, well, like project management or like these big categories, you really shouldn't bootstrap these businesses. And I think if you go into some of those categories, uh, it's best if you probably pick a segment and go after that segment instead of just sort of be really horizontal. And if you don't have any connections and you don't have a way to make that work, then that can be really tough if you're just bootstrapping. I would say the same thing about building an ESP, right, an email service provider, and then Drip and ConvertKit bootstrapped, right? And then, you know, think of Derek Reimer with going against Calendly with Savvy Cal, where, you know, you could say, oh, he raised tiny seed money, but he didn't need that money. That just extended his runway. He had the, his drip money to essentially bootstrap himself. And there's, there's a big difference between raising money at that level versus like a VC. Oh yeah. 120 grand versus 5 million. I mean, it's just night and day, right? There's no comparison. Yeah. And that's where, I mean, that's the, I think the perception that I've, again, it was customer.io, right? It was when he's Colin said fund strapping. And the first time I heard that was 2013 or 2014. And I hadn't realized that that was, that there was this third path. And that's from then on, I started thinking, wow, I'm going to start, I, I wanted to start funding businesses like that right away. Right. And that became all the rest of my angel investments and eventually led to us starting tiny seed. That was a big part of it is like, it's night and day raising again, 120, 180K versus several million dollars. A lot of people don't know that. You know, the moment you say, oh, I raised some funding, it's like they think, oh, you're just on this lightning track and you're owned by the VCs. And it's like, no, it really isn't that way anymore. 
It's pretty funny though on the on the VC side. I've seen some VCs like Andrew Chen and and others say and have discussions with other people like, no, they're bootstrapped. They only raised a million, right? Anything under a million is bootstrapped. But they just consider it so different. Yep, because you have to be. You still have to be capital efficient. You know, you raise a few hundred thousand dollars, and you're going after big opportunity. I mean, a million is a lot to me. That still sounds like a lot because. I don't play, but I, you know, they're, they're playing in completely different waters. But when I think of someone raising half a million dollars or less, which is most of my angel investments and the, the tiny seed investments, a few have gone on to raise more than that, but you still have to think like a capital efficient person because that's just not enough money to hire. Like <laughs> you can't hire a team of, of 20 and try to just hyper growth out of that. You can hire a couple people and your burn rate gets high real quick, you know, when you do it that way. You can try it, yeah, <laughs> but it's not going to work out that well. That's right. It's easy to burn through it. So, anyways, yeah, that's a that's a good question. Thanks for sending that over, Jeff. Last question of the day. This question is from Steve at SkillsDBPro.com, and the subject line is pricing again. Yes, again. And he says, hey, Rob, big fan. Your work thoughts and guests offer beyond valuable insights that are actionable as well as motivational on a daily basis. Thank you. Our out-of-the-box pricing is a dollar a seat per month. Our average size client is 500 seats and normally are either a division of a large Fortune 5000 company or a smaller 300-person company that uses us as their sole talent and learning solution. I have a question about pricing that can best be shown in this email I got from a lead today, and this was seven months ago. Sorry for the, we have a lot of questions in the backlog. And so the the lead wrote, thanks again for the demo yesterday. It was great to see the potential use case. I'd be interested in setting up another demo with more people in my org. Let's find a time that works. Also, if you could fit together a very enticing proposal based on up to 8,000 users, that would be helpful. As there could potentially be interested in setting something up before the end of the calendar year. So now switching back to Steve's email, he says, in addition to emails like this, we recently had a request from an existing client to bid out 60,000 seats. They were currently using 1,000 seats in a division and they wanted to expand it. We did not get this deal because we can't seem to get the pricing right on these larger volumes. They said we were too expensive even at a hefty double-digit discount, yet they had no problem paying full price for the division. I'm terrified of underbidding larger projects and end up bearing myself with both work and money. I'm sure you've had this problem at Drip or one of your guests have run into this. I'm just out of my league figuring out how to price large clients and they are coming our way more often. Thanks for any thoughts you have on this. What do you think, sir? First, uh, I love this business. I mean, they're great. You know, yeah, <laughs> 500 seats, 6,000, 60,000. It's great. The way that I would approach it, and we're at the lower end of the market for uh, Signwell right now, but we're releasing and onboarding uh, the API product, which is mid-market and, you know, more towards enterprise. We're also now HIPAA compliant, SOC 2. So those are much bigger deals and the pricing is just completely different. One of the things that I've been doing is just spending a lot of time doing research on how these products are priced in our category. I think that's really important because you're not basically, usually for a lot of these bigger deals especially, you're not competing in a vacuum. They're getting bids and they're talking to other 
other vendors, they say. So I would first thing is just find out how they're pricing, how some of your competitors are pricing these larger deals. Because if you're not getting these deals, somebody else is. So I would figure that part out first and then think about how you're going to be positioned in this market. If you're newer and you're, you're trying to break in, you're probably going to, depending on your positioning and brand, can be maybe on the lower end compared to the alternatives in there. But it, it's really just hard to sort of make up your own pricing and experiment. There's definitely, you have to do some experimentation with this stuff, but it helps a lot if you know what you basically understand what the customer is, is looking at. You can see it from their perspective. That's a big deal. If none of your competitors publish their pricing online, then you have to dig in and, and figure that out because if you're in the dark, you're just, I think you'll keep losing these. I mean, my initial thought, I, I'm 100%, what you said is, is what I would do. Without any of that information, I have heard of these big enterprise deals. You know, you have a, a thousand seats, and then you have 60,000 seats, like that's a big difference, right? And a 40% discount at 60,000 seats is still, in my opinion, probably not enough. Like I've heard of enterprise deals that have 80% discounts at massive scale, right? They, they really bring it down. Now you have to figure out, does your cost structure work with that? Is, that? is that really where it needs to go? And unless you have some inkling as to what your competitors are doing, you really are just guessing at that point. And it's, it's tough and it can be stressful or at least complicated and take a lot of time every time you have to fill out one of these proposals. If I've sat in front of proposals, whether I was, you know, selling my own consulting work when I was a micro agency, or we had some really big drip contracts where I just sat in front of it and I was like, okay, it's $2,000 a month. No, it's 2,500. No, it's three. Like I, and I was, I was literally just kind of making it up thinking, I, I really do want this. This will move our needle. But I also, I don't want to underbid. So, how, you know, how do you get there? And I had the luxury of knowing they're looking at MailChimp and ActiveCampaign and, and you could just go to their website and get the pricing. So at least I had an idea of, I am going to price myself higher but, and, and then pitch them on, here's why we're worth that. Or I'm going to price myself in the middle or I'm going to be the cheapest and it's still a profitable uh, kind of bid for us. That's a good point. Like if you're discounting that heavily, it might just not be something that you want to compete in. That's also a decision that you need to make, right? Like, where can you win? Where do you want to compete uh, right now? It doesn't mean that it's always going to be that way, but it can save you a lot of time and hassle. Yeah, I agree. I also think it's like, if you're a commodity, and I don't know that SkillsDB Pro is or isn't, but if you're generally a commodity and generally the same product and they're just comparing apples to apples, it's tough to not compete on price because otherwise, why you know, mm -hmm. kind of the same. So then I start thinking, well, how do I get a SOC 2 compliance? How do I get a f single sign-on or get a feature or feature set that other people don't have? Or how do I get a HIPAA compliance? You know, how, how can I get these things? And again, maybe all your competitors have all those things too and, and maybe it just is a, a mature space and it's really hard to differentiate. But that's where unique positioning and differentiated features or I, I include HIPAA and SOC 2 as features like differentiation allows you to have pricing power, right? This is like economics, you know, 101 or 102 is if you're commoditized, it's mostly on price and differentiation allows you to do something other than that and to make, make a higher profit. So thanks for the question, Steve. I uh, appreciate you writing in again. And uh, yeah, it was kind of a fun thing to think through. Ruben Gomez, you are at EarthlingWorks on Twitter. 
where you, uh, you're like, I don't know, you're an elder statesman of, of bootstrapping and of the microconf community, you know? It's like you, you go on Twitter and you say wise things. Is that another way of saying old? No, <laughs> I did use the phrase elder. But OG, yeah. OG, yeah, realistically. But you just, I, whenever I see you respond on Twitter, I'm like, this guy knows what he's talking about. So if you're not following Earthling Works, you should go out and do that. And obviously, docsketch.com. When this goes live, but soon it will be signwell, S-I-G-N, well.com. And in fact, I should have you back on the show, both to give updates on, on what's going on with your business, because a bunch has happened, but to talk us through that thought process of renaming your company, you know, because it was, a, I know there have to be some people out there <laughs> who are thinking of the same thing. And much like I told you, I'm going to tell them don't do it. But in this case, right, it's, I, I think it's the right call. And so that'd be a fun, fun story to walk through at some point once you're on the other side of it. Yeah, that'd be fun. Cool. Awesome, man. Well, so thanks again. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks again to Ruben for joining me this week. And thank you for joining me once again. I'm going to wrap this episode without further ado. And I'll be back in your earbuds again next Tuesday morning.